Hello guys, happy hump day. Um, that's because it's Wednesday, not whatever else you got coming to mind when that happens. But power to you if Wednesday is uh, business time for you, as uh, they say in Flight of the Concords. Uh, today I just kind of wanted to go into something that's been on my mind uh, as someone who's expecting a first child, a son, no less, uh, in a couple weeks. It's hard to put an exact time on when because they don't really come out when they're scheduled to. Well, some do. I mean, there's a very wide variety of variances in, in everything to do with babies, as I'm told. Um, I've just been having a, a bit of a strange time in thinking about my life and how I'm able to almost accurately and clearly recall memories and, and childhood experiences from so long ago in my life that it's strange and surreal to be moving to the point where I'm on the other side of the table for a lot of those memories. So to remember, I don't know, like as a child, you know, driving places with my dad or with my mom and the, the conversations we would have and the experiences and what I was feeling at the time and it just made a little bit surreal because it's going to be me that's having those conversations experiences and car rides life lessons with my son instead of being the recipient and it I think it all just plays to this um I guess this idea that every I guess every parent but just speaking for myself and I guess more specifically to the gender. I think um, it's something that all dads have to, you know, wrestle with the idea that you are going to be someone's dad. And it's, you know, it, it takes no effort to knock somebody up, but it takes every effort to be a good father. And uh, I'm sure I mixed up that analogy where, like, anyone could be a father, but you can't be a dad. I, I, I've seen the Hallmark card. Um, actually, I had a social services lawyer um, it's a lot, another story. When I was younger, like when I was a kid, and uh, my dad was involved on the other end of the, the case. I will do an episode on it. It's a righteous story. But she was like this tough as nails, like Alberta lawyer who was like always like fighting for the underdog. Like I love this woman to bits. And she was like, we got expression about people like that back home. If you can't feed them, don't breed them. And it's like... <laughs> Makes me laugh all the time because she said that in court, like not not on the stand or anything, but she said that in a courtroom setting. Um, yeah, it's very important to me to be a good dad. Um, my father was not. Um, I, I wrestle with. Uh, I'm using that expression a lot. I think because I've been reading a lot of like the big WrestleMania news and stuff happening, and, and I know that anyway. Um, you contemplate a lot decisions you've made to cut people out of your lives, and especially when they're people that were influential or instrumental in your life. Um, so obviously my father and I don't speak anymore. It's been probably... Uh, I'll give you guys a summary. I will do like a full-on Dads on Dad episode. <laughs> it will be called that. Uh, and I'll, I will explain the relationship in, in detail, but we didn't you know, it was not a particularly, like, tender and, and uh, fatherly person throughout the childhood. And there was some, you know, kind of meanness and disagreements, and it was not a happy... 
It's not as bad as I'm painting it, but at the same time as having lived it and seeing like the normal happy-go-lucky lives a lot of my friends had, it, it, was, it was pretty bad. Um, and I directly... I give my dad credit for maybe 70% of the reasons I'm fucked up, the other 30 being my mom. Like, I love my mom, but, you know, parents do that. But um, it's just been tough with my dad because I... There isn't that, like, deep, like, love of, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, we don't like each other, we love each other. Like, there's just not even that. There's just, we have to, like, we're both the kind of people that know for title alone. We have to, like, get along and, you know, and, you, know you don't want to be told, like, oh, really? Like, you're, you're comfortable never speaking to your dad again? It's like, well, yeah. I mean, like, what does it do for me? So he was, like, a dick most of my life. And then we had a, a fight, and I don't necessarily mean just a verbal fight. And then... We separated and parted ways after he obviously, like, well, I, I left home, like, as soon as, base. I'm going to have to go into this episode, and I feel like I'm going to give you a prequel episode, and nobody likes that shit, but we had, our last outing as a family was at my grandparents, and it was a brunch, and that was a very common occurrence, and this was just, that was, like, our bastion of family stuff, and not only like every other weekend we would go there for the brunch and it would just became a specifically you know familial spot and just familiar spot too for me I mean having like divorced parents who move all the time there were not a lot of places left that hadn't changed and so my dad had been like pressuring them to sell their house and like to like scuttle them off to some retirement home so he could start like I don't know like smogging over their supposed inheritance that they're that he thinks they're gonna leave him maybe they will I don't really care I don't like to think about that kind of stuff unlike some people but I'd had enough of his bullshit and at the time I had you know heard from other people in the family in, in good measure that that's what he was doing and it was just frustrating we had kind of a disagreement and it escalated into a stronger louder disagreement and there was I I don't know I, I don't even remember it a lot of the time I just remember Jeff and I coined the phrase brown hulking which is not to do with shitting it's just as you know you, you had a lot of hair back then, you know, it's like a brown blur of, of sort of repressed rage for a long time, but uh, he and I didn't speak for about two years after that, and uh, as I mentioned, there was kind of an embroiled legal battle that was tough, it, I don't want to, it's not to make it sound cool, but it got very Game of Thronesy for a while because it was like, we have a big family when you look at it in, in certain ways, like across international lines and across like different connections, and a lot of the people hate each other, a lot of them play the game, like they they don't come out and say they hate anyone, they don't, you know, they talk through their teeth, talk at both sides of their mouth, they're always like, oh, he's great, and then she's great, and then like, he's awful, and she's the worst, and like, all the time. There was nothing ever said that you could take at face value. There was nothing you could tell anyone in confidence and not expect to be circulated around. So I got kind of bounced around of, of you know, at the beginning out of manipulation and then of my own volition when I kind of learned how to play the game. But uh, the family's terrible. They would, like, I would have family members offer to, like, give you money and pay for your, like, education or school or do things and, like, exchange for, like, your attendance at events that would happen to be at a time that they knew, like, your parents had something planned or the other side of the family had something planned or like offers to go on trips that you couldn't go on just so they could like uninvite you it just it was a lot of a lot of that and it culminated in for legal reasons I will actually not be able to at this time share a lot of the story because it was part of a case I don't know the full details of the settlement 
and I just don't want to get on uh, either side, but I had essentially, uh, I had parties bankroll a tremendous legal action against other parties in the family just to fuck with them and just get revenge for their own beef on that, but by using me as a catalyst, because it was something like, you know when demons possess people because they themselves can't do things? Like, they're going to possess a guy and get him to, like, open the cabinet where the necromancy books are or something? I think I'm pulling some of that from House with the Clock in the Walls, but you know what I mean? When, when a being can't do something themselves, so they manipulate another being to do it, open the door, and they step through the door, that kind of thing. So interested parties wanted me to exploit the position I had and uh, pretty much go after him for my own purposes, which they had like grossly inflated to me and everything, but just for their own purpose. And I can tell you one of these parties, the one bankrolling me, was considerably more wealthy, like wealthy to begin with, but far more wealthy than the other parties. So they're just, you know, literally... <laughs> Yeah, nothing to gain, I promise you. There was nothing at the most at the end of like this supposed three or four year legal altercation, there would have been a settlement of like peanuts. I mean, this was just volitious. I don't know. Revenge is hard, man. This is, I'm getting a little off track, but I'm not. These are things that you really just start to have to look at is how you acted and how you will act as a person because. I keep having this conversation with my wife. I mean, like, just we have to make sure that we're not setting a bad example. And I hate to be that guy. I hate to say that. And I hate to say a parent line like that. But it's true because you get the the perspective and the understanding that you weren't ready to handle some of those things or you weren't ready to be exposed. And, and your eagerness as a kid needs to be checked by someone who has more experience in that, I think. Like, uh, my wife has a sensitiveness for, like, in terms of, not like, a fondness, like, a almost a bit of an aversion to, like, very bloody history and, and conflicts and human tragedies, because it makes her quite upset. And she was telling me, I think, like, they learned about the Rwandan genocide and whatever grade she was in, and it was, like, in a, you know, some up there grade I think she said like between like grade eight or something and she was like well you know for a kid because I own a lot of history books and a lot of them are very graphic and sad and it's important to you know if if it happened to the human race and it was tragic and it cost someone their life then it's worth being documented and remembered because otherwise that person really just lost their life for nothing and that makes me sad so the only thing more sad than these books is the idea that we would not read them because they're, quote, too sad. Uh, anyway, she asked me, like, you need to make sure these books are, like, out of reach and you can't find them and stuff because, you know, age and tenderness. I said, I agree up to a certain point. She says, well, okay, well, what, what is that point? I'm like, well, when did you learn about stuff like that? And she said, well, that was pretty much my first exposure uh, in, in a school setting to that. What about you? And I was like, True story. Like, when I was, like, eight or nine years old, I got, like, a heavy, like, this was the Holocaust. This is exactly how, like, people were, like, cremated and gassed. And, like, there's even talk that some people were made into lamps and Auschwitz. And it was just, like, I had a super zealously religious Jewish history teacher at a Jewish private school. And it was so scary. And I was the only, like, not, um, it was a small class. It was maybe 10, 12 people. And my brother and I were, like, 
not religious people. This is like my dad sent us there because it was cheap, and I'm pretty sure he like lied so that they'd give us free tuition because it was an expensive private school. But I, yeah, my that was my dad. So um, pretty sure that was like deeply upsetting and disturbing. I know I didn't sleep for like a couple days. It really bothered me. I just thought like Nazis were always going to come and get me. Like it, it's it's almost it's funny in retrospect, and people always think that's kind of a joke and. It's like you, you, some people it was boogeyman under the bed, some people it was the dark, some people it was whatever. It was Nazis for me until I got like big enough that I thought I could take on the Nazis. Like as a kid, like I would, you know, we'd go to a family brunch and I was like nine years old and be like, oh no, there's so many of us gathered here. <laughs> like this is how they're gonna get us. And it was just that, that's how you have to realize that this is like these things have a lasting impression on a kid. And that was what my dad never realized was that. These aren't just two idiots that you can lie to and feed your bullshit for an entire lifetime and expect them to not be any the wiser. Right away, we saw patterns. We saw my dad just to give. He's like the I don't know. He's some amalgam of like Jake Peralta's dad in in Brooklyn Nine Nine. He's got that like I don't know. I'm trying to think of other instances where the dad is like always hitting on waitresses and like trying to like do stuff that looks good but actually doesn't give a shit he was always the first person to like buy an expensive SUV and say it was for the like the family and like buy us expensive toys and stuff but like never and this is like a lifetime thing for me my wife can confirm how annoying I get about this but like he would never like play video games with me or watch movies or TV of things that weren't interesting and we did watch movies a lot and my love of movies came from that house but it was just because he would buy them and he would take me to Pacific Mall which is the greatest place on earth. And like at the, it's this extremely Asian, uh, sorry, that's not fair to say. It's a very Chinese mall. It's a specifically like this uh, Toronto, I think it's in Newmarket or Markham or something. It's this massive labyrinthian Chinese city style mall. It's very cool. You should Google it. It's on Wikipedia. And it's amazing. It's like, uh, it's divided into streets. Uh, the stores are like tiny little, um, they're all sort of the same uniform size. Like maybe, 20 meters by 10 meter rectangles and it's very cool you can get everything upstairs just like a heritage village you used to buy swords and lunch there um, in that order which is nice day of sword shopping get some lunch uh, but bootlegging back then um, this was like before Blu-ray just before Blu-ray was coming out um, when the HD and uh, Blu-ray I was say console war the, the format war was playing out. Nobody really cared about DVD anymore, so everything was really lax. So you would go to Pacific Mall, and for $20, you could pick out eight bootleg movies. And these were movies that were in theaters. <laughs> Some of them, they're called cam quality. It's the garbagest tier of movie. I can't watch it anymore. I used to be able to. I can't. Where literally someone's like sitting in a movie <laughs> with a like, camcorder in their pants or their pocket or something. It's garbage. You hear people walking around, chewing, the thing moves. There's always like some fucking person sitting in front of you obstructing it. But if you were lucky, you've got just a good quality rip, which was somebody had probably got like an earlier copy or a release copy or like a Russian pirated copy. And then the best quality, which was, they would just call it HD, which I don't know necessarily know how they would get these. And definitely some form of piracy involved there. But they would just give you movies that, some of them, if they've been out, it's guaranteed HD quality. But some of them were times where my friends would be like, oh, I just saw this movie in theaters. And I'd be like, that's awesome. I saw it at home. And like, 
Yeah, but the quality, like, you'd be surprised. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to describe him, especially uh, using fictional characters, but those those stereotypes are there, and I, I hope that helps color the kind of person he was. He was someone who was, like, more interested in being cool and living his best life as opposed to, like, actually being invested in the kids that he talked about being invested in all the time. Um, constantly changing jobs, which is something that, like, scared me into not wanting to be like that. Constantly, like, not telling people about his job. Just just an all-around kind of sketchy dude and not someone that was, like, a, a fantastic father at all. I think he tried up to a certain point, and I think when, especially when boys get to a certain, like, age, there's not a lot of parenting left you can do. You kind of just have to, like, hope what you did sets in and herd them towards the finish. But I'm staring down the barrel of becoming a father, and I have a couple more weeks where it's just... I call it a house of two. My wife says, a house of four, there's two cats. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So we'll be a house of three in a few weeks. And I want to be myself, but I want to make sure that I'm raising someone who isn't going to one day look back and think I'm a piece of shit. (laughs) I'm not saying that's anything to do with you give it a standard try with fathering and they grow up to think that way. You have to be a really bad father. But what scares me the most, I think the, the thesis of this has got to be that I do not want to wind up like my dad and I know that is what everybody says and it sucks because it's a 50-50 game. I know enough, I know so many dudes that say that and then wind up when I, if I, or when I meet their father, like 100% they're the same. Or when they describe him, which is always the funniest, they're like, I don't want to be like my dad. My dad's always like, you know, super controlling, and, like, he always does this, and he's, like, always bossing me around. It's like, isn't that you, though? (laughs) So, yeah. I'm not worried about having a son, to be honest. I don't think I've been as as deeply excited for anything ever in my life, which is a good sign for me. I always... I use that Dirk Gently line, but I... Lately, you gotta just feel like a, a leaf in the stream of creation. Like, you just don't have a lot of control over what's going on especially if you're someone who lives in a city and you like commute to work and you just feel like you're part of this, you're just a piece of seaweed, like a drift in a, in a very large ocean. And, you know, the bus comes when it comes. The subway comes when it comes. Lines are, you know, there's just going to be people wherever you're going to go. You know, sometimes stuff just doesn't work. Machines break. It just, there's not a lot of things you can control. We were planning on having a kid in a couple of years. It's happening now. It's not about control. It's just being about being about being about ready it's about being ready and it's about understanding that when they're babies this this is a lot of redundancy you know if anyone's listening they're gonna be like you you know put a lot of thought into a baby that's just gonna poop and eat and poop I get that but they become not babies and you know I'm really looking forward to the day where I can look at my son and, and see him playing a game or watching a movie that maybe I did at the same age, or maybe it's something totally different, but he's getting that same enjoyment from it. And not only will I have to stop and just appreciate that moment, but that's the time when I want to be able to say, like, oh, can I play with you or can I watch with you? Because that's what my dad never did. And, you know, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what your parenting style is. As long as you raise kids that 
feel like they were loved and that they're trusted and well prepared. Then that's really all that matters. So yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a hell of a ride. We're packing the hospital bags now, which is uh, when you prepare like clothes, toiletries, baby possessions, and everything for not only like the delivery and transport home of the baby, but like the possibility that you're in there for a couple days. I don't know. Ideally not. Ideally it's like a six to eight hour smooth ride. But as we said, this level of variety is something else. Uh, yeah, so if you're a new dad, an expecting dad, a re- whatever, you want to have anything to share, I'm always interested, man. I'm always, I'm always longing for that same-minded conversation. Because to be honest, that's been a bit of a challenge. All my friends are either in the school of like, because I'm in you know the mid to late twenties, so it's it's a meme, but it's true. All my friends are either like living at home and still kind of stuck in a high school vibe, or they're like out working and hustling and so on and so forth. But just of my personal circle, this I don't think a single person that I know that I could you know rap serious with. I, nobody's having a baby. And to be candid, that makes it so much more scary. And I'm not scared in that way, but when you blaze any trail and you don't really have the the words from other people, you know, there's a there's a newness to it that's a little more daunting. When people offer advice, and that's what they always fucking do when they talk to you about kids, I promise you most of the time you just don't want to hear it and it's annoying. But some small part of you is comforted when they're like, oh, my God, you're going to, you know, you're going to love it. There's this and that. Make sure, like, they'll go on for three minutes. I've checked out. But as soon as they start with, like, oh, this is happening, you're going to love it. Like, it's nice. It's nice to hear, like, thank you. It's nice to be positive. Because overall, you know, everyone needs to hear it. Uh, My wife has dropped in terms of uh, movement of the baby slash shape. So she's good. I describe it as, like, going from it looked like a volleyball under her shirt, like, just that kind of hard sphereness to looking like an egg under her shirt pointed slightly downwards shape wise but yeah exciting time Arthur Chiyune Harris super cool um, I guess may as well explain it now I will go into his well obviously we'll wait till um, he's born to do like a full episode but I want to just put out there now just so people can understand because I've answered this question a lot and I think it's worth sharing Uh, I wanted to pick a name that was special for his middle name and also because I've spent I get to literally say it to this point a lot of my life studying and researching Japan I went to university for it and have a degree in it I've like written a published book on it I've been pretty much on it and interested in it for I don't know. My mom has a journal that I wrote in terrible scribbly crayon when I was four that talked about me going to Japan. So it's old time stuff. It's anyway. I didn't just want him to have a random like Toshiro or like Matsumoto or something like extremely uh, extremely common. I wanted a name that if I was going to have a Japanese name would have some significance. And also speaking of like Matsumoto and, and Toshiro and stuff, like y- giving a character like an anime name is power to you if you love it, but <laughs> you roll the dice with that one. Uh, and also for first names, 
I don't want to talk about racism or cultural appropriation, which, especially that second one, we could have a long conversation about. But it's weird when you have like a non-Japanese person with a Japanese name for a first name. I've known them. It's odd. It never doesn't require a question. It's not like if you meet a Japanese person, and you know, this is uh, Kano or something. Like, I don't know. I'm no. I'm trying to think of Japanese names that aren't intrinsically anime names because I'm trying to make better examples but uh, fine My, you meet a guy who who has a Japanese name if he's white you're going to be like cool were you born there are your parents interested I didn't want to I didn't want to suffer through that for him and have him go through that so Japanese middle name is tasteful and my personal favorite historical Japanese person who is not like a wartime general or Shogun of some kind. <laughs> or actor in Kyogen Theater. We'll get to that another time. Uh, oops, sorry. Pause the button. Well, accidentally. I record on my phone and uh, I'm kind of cleaning my phone. And If you have an iPhone, you know that makes it do everything. So my favorite... Uh, Japanese person who's like not a, a wartime general or samurai or anything is uh, Chune Sugihara or Sugihara Chune. Uh, depends on if you're doing a sort of Japanese or American pronunciation and vernacular. So he is a gentleman who, during the Second World War, was the Japanese ambassador and uh, sort of liaison with Lithuania. Uh, he worked with the sort of Nazi government an imperial Japanese government to, you know, just do paperwork, administrative oversight, bureaucrat stuff. But when he became aware of what was happening to the Jews in, in Lithuania and the, the tasks that he was being given were to start, um, you know, establishing a route for them to go to the camps, what he did instead was he just started creating passports and travel documents en masse constantly for people. And he had saved, and this is what I'm not, I, I, you know, for what it's worth, I'm sitting here at my desk at work just like looking over construction maps. So I do not have his, his bio in front of me. If you guys want to look it up, there's a Wikipedia page. It's amazing. I did at one point have a hand editing it. I don't know if my edits are still there, but um, read up on him. He saves, if I recall, something like 6,000 people directly. But because people marry and have kids and families, he's saved over 40,000 people by extension. He's been given some of the highest honors that you can be given by the state of Israel for his actions, as well as like a bunch of international uh, awards and recognition. Uh, what always struck me, though, because being a young you know, Jewish person studying Japanese history, there is not a lot of... There's no middle of the Venn diagram between the Japan and, and Jewish circles. So to have this guy that had that connection and inexplicably, like he, he was asked why. It's like, so why did you risk your, your, your neck and your job and your life and everything for these people that you have nothing to do with? And he's like, because they're people. They needed help. So that was always, to me, what was most striking, that this was not... Obviously not for any kind of gain or anything, but this wasn't helping, you know, my brother's sister. This was just helping a human being. And I think at the end of the day, that is the lesson that is worth teaching. 
So you should check it out, read his, his page, read his bio. There is uh, a few good actual printed books that talk about him. But yeah, he was, uh, there's, I think, like a Polish counterpart to this guy. I always forget. My brother did a research project on him, which is a shame that I forget. But he was famous for, like, running on top of trains and throwing passports in for the Jews and stuff. Like, I think his name is Raoul Wallenberg, if I'm not mistaken. But check him out, too, 100%. But Chiune Sugihara was just something else in terms of the amount of people he saved, why he did it, uh, the lack of fame. Let me just take one more second to say after the war had ended, he never talked about it, so much so that his family didn't know he had done any of that. And he went back into anonymity and just sort of worked at a factory for like 37 years. He is inspiring. How many people genuinely can say or know even anyone that can say not only would they do those things, but they wouldn't even like step forward? Everyone fucking, people post their meal to get gratification on social media. Like, he was a great guy, uh, a righteous Gentile, to say the least. So... I think the, the award he was given was uh, something among nations, like honest, or, uh, honor best of nations, I don't know. Fantastic guy doing fantastic things for a fantastic reason. And so when people ask him, like, you know, Arthur Harris, that's a standard Scottish sort of UK name, that's fine, but Chiune, what is that? And like, it's Japanese. And like, oh, are you just, no, it's named after this guy. And I, you know, I'm not trying to have an agenda for his, his name, but... I hope, it, you know, it's, it's an honor to that man. It's an homage, and when people ask if he gets to explain it to them, then that's someone that most likely would have never heard of this person, and it's, that's important. I think it's a nice name as well. It, obviously, aesthetically, a name has to be something that someone is comfortable taking with them their whole life. So, yeah. Well, wait till he's born. I'm going to go into it because I have a book I want to read an excerpt from to you guys about uh, about this man and about some of the things that he did. But yeah, maybe we'll keep it out of the real stuff for now. I have, uh, as I said, a couple more weeks when these podcasts are going to be entertainment news saturated instead of baby and or baby noise saturated. I'm going to hope that that's not the latter. Uh, I do a lot of my recordings when I can in, in sound safe spaces, so that will continue. I'm not going to sit there and like baby crying in the background. Like, yeah, guys, it's a great... <laughs> anyway. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Fortnite. That's the, the segue in to the next as we do. Season 8, and again, first time I had a battle pass, so I'm trying to hit it really hard because I'm, I'm of the mind that once the baby's born, I'm not going to have as much time to Fortnite, which probably is how it goes. They just added, uh, or they're going to add, like a medic van that heals people up, which is kind of cool, so check it out. Besides that, though, I'm kind of sick of these rollers. The roller is by far the most fun and fastest, easiest way to get around the island. Because if you've ever played a Spider-Man game, which I'm playing like right now, like I constantly play that game, I'm very close to platinuming it. But if you play that, then you understand the physics of swinging or like or any game that has that, and you could travel around in the fastest ever. It outstrips the plane, 
the maneuverability of where you can get to is great. Uh, destroying enemy builds is fun. If you get yourself in between a few of the enemy's walls and a structure and boost at the right angle, you bring the whole thing down. You'll just ricochet so much. I'm giving it a lot of compliments because it's really fun to play in, but it's very annoying to play against. People complained about the, the, the airplane and there was all this whinging of how unfair it is and you know, people just staying in the sky. This thing is way more annoying. Firstly, it's the only vehicle that's enclosed. I don't know why this is something that was okay. Every other vehicle exposes you, so you can't just like, sit still. If you take a headshot in a car, you take a headshot. Cart, AT, um, the ATV, airplane, anything. But not this. This just cracks the shield, which it has a lot of. Not only do they go fast, making them hard to hit, but they can climb. They can kind of just exist in places that are really hard to get to. People used to do this plane trick where they'd fly the, the circuit around the outside of the island and they'd like land at these low-lying outcroppings on the side, build like little metal cabins and just wait out the game. Not only were those really easy to counter against, but once people got wise to it, there's nothing else they can do like that because planes are easy to keep an eye on. They're slow, they have takeoff time, they're loud. These balls are not. They're, they're quiet they are able to pretty much silently and effortlessly, <laughs> effortlessly, effortlessly, they can effortlessly assault in any direction, whether it's up, down, left, right. They can drop themselves from ceilings from any height. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, it just kind of happened that way. Uh, they're not very useful assault crafts, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in a game that's based about around being the last and outliving your your opponents, it's kind of bullshit that they can just wait out the game. Because what I've seen in Final Circle a lot of the time, especially in Solo, it's like eight people left, so, you know, there's seven people left, and then four fucking balls roll by, bouncing off each other, and then, like, I'm taking aim, shooting at one, and then somebody shoots me, and then, like, just gets back in their ball, and, like, happens all the time. Squad games? Forget about it, honestly. Forget about it. You get literal groups of four people rolling around, like, grappling, hooking into each other, slinging themselves around, and then they all get out and shoot at one time, and, like, if they're coordinated, that's deadly, and if they're not, it's hilarious, but then, yeah. I don't know. The ball's fun. The game's balanced. Uh, Epic, for all their faults, everything they introduce winds up being pretty balanced, but I'm just so sick of the plane not being in the game, and because there were so many complaints having these instead is just ridiculous. I don't understand it. They are far more irritating to deal with. Uh, and also for spawning for airplanes, I mean, you seem to never really get that many. When they first came in, there were like five everywhere, but once they became a regular part of the game, it was like you would get maybe one or two at an airstrip if they spawn there at all. With the balls, it's like every time I go anywhere, there's like the suction cup things on the ground full of them. But we have the sword fight mode now, so that's all I've been doing. I had a game last night and killed six people with a sword. Another guy on my team had four, and then I think the other two had two apiece. We just cleaned house. We came in second place, which is really frustrating when you, you know, with those numbers. We came in second place because my teammates were just too busy dicking around. Like, too busy, like, jumping in and smashing furniture and 
launching themselves skyward instead of like focusing on where gunfire is coming from and helping a teammate and you know being useful uh, I played a bit of World of Warcraft again and probably going to be my last month I used to play at one point in my life and I got to not even that high I think at 40 or something or the I'd say like with a Torin. I don't think a Torin Paladin makes sense, but it was a Torin something. But I find now it's just, I don't know, it's kind of repetitious. It doesn't really seem like there's anything original in there. My computer is not a superstar, so the graphics are kind of low, and that, I guess that's on me, but I think you need a good group of dudes or a good person to play with to really make the game pop, because you can put that sort of adventure element into it and have an adventure with somebody. You could travel the world, you could do things, but if you're just fucking grinding and going on these quests that are like, collect six crystals, bring them back to me, great. Collect three quillabores, bring them back to me, and like, I get that's the beginning, but I think I'm like level 35 now, and like, it's just changed from that to like, three blood crystals and fight 18 skeletons. It's like the same fucking thing, and Yes, I get the argument that that's a lot of video games. and No, I'm not putting down what's effectively the most popular MMORPG of all time. If you enjoy it, power to you. I just think, in my opinion, it's the, the company that makes it a little bit. Um, yeah, so we have... I don't know, we have that the podcast uh, Dave and I have, so we should be putting out some more videos soon. But I think in terms of direction... I don't know who listens to this, uh, who's listening to both of those channels, but if you guys want to see more of sort of video game playing along and, and that kind of thing, let us know, because I'm getting the vibe nobody likes it at all. <laughs> and uh, the intention was just sort of to do almost sketch comedy skits and silly voices and stuff, and I think we've got kind of away from that. So, you know, if you add something to the recipe and it tastes great it works out but sometimes maybe it doesn't you gotta go back and figure it out so I'm just trying to see what the what the marketplace thinks um, sorry I'm just flipping through a document we have a, a big initiative to clean up because it's Earth Day coming soon and I encourage everyone to do the same thing and I as a history person as I mean anyone listens to this channel or even this fucking episode <laughs> you get it uh, so I really enjoy peeling through old documents so I get to look through these like old 1980 1950 um, Canadian I don't know they're historical documents at this point we consider them historical documents because they're like older than 20 years but some of them are actually uh, you know some gnarly stuff government publications from the 50s also, I'm reading something about the use of our uh, our logo, and it's hilarious that it's one, two, seven pages on the acceptable use of our logo. That's probably the most government thing. No, eight pages. That's the most government thing I can think of. Um, yeah, it's just like... The key identifying device is the logo as highly visible corporate color of harvest gold as the cornerstone of the program projects an up-to-date efficient transportation system. To complement the logo, there's a secondary color system from which can be chosen 
either aggressive colour combinations for exterior identification or warmer, monochromatic colour combinations to reinforce themes of passenger comfort, vitrine interiors and ancillary environments. And the following manual's guidelines, care must be taken to achieve a proper thematic balance between a strong aggressive corporate indication and warmer, more subdued interior surroundings. This manual provides employees with the necessary specifications to carry out the identification programme consistently and throughout. <laughs> they, they further go on to talk about the specific team that they're putting together of the staff of the Corporate Identity and Integrity Programme, which definitely should have been <laughs> what SHIELD is instead of SHIELD. It'd be a terrible acronym. S-O-T-C-I-P. SOTIKIP. Yeah, I've heard worse. Um, yeah, it's fun. We definitely have a section, uh, like, to say there's a section for everything is, is, you don't really get an idea of it, but it's like, if we're going to buy furniture, which we did, there's a section for it, and then there's a section for the chairs that we're going to buy, and then there's sort of a section for the upholstery, and by section, I mean, like, each one had to be a series of correspondences. This is obviously not how we are now. People make jokes, but the government's actually, Canadian anyway, is quite efficiently run. But when you didn't have electronic business means and when there was no email and when just business was done differently, it definitely uh, <laughs> creates a huge amount of just hilarious bureaucracy. Let me see what else is pretty jokes here. I had a request uh, from somebody again that... Um, for the silent space. So I'm getting the idea that the, as I call it, the, the mech room, the Gundams are, I think that's maybe something I'll do occasionally and I'll do silent recordings more often because uh, in terms of white noise, to me it doesn't make a difference and some people supposedly enjoy it a lot, but uh, thankfully my microphone sort of subdues it and puts it in the back audio track, but I always think a silent recording is better, but... Hell, if you're going to tell me that you guys miss that white noise, let me know. It is indifferent to me. But I thought just to make it a little asmr today, I would give you guys just a tiny bit of, like, a flipbook-style read-along. I still remember, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, a YouTube person called Gentle Whispering who would do, like, it's like a teeth, something like a tax booklet, like... It was this big, glossy, like, tax information booklet for somewhere in the U.S. I don't know. We would call it, like, a T4, like, federal tax type stuff. But she was just flipping through the pages and explaining how to do your taxes. And not only, like, is that boring and uninteresting, but I don't even, I'm not even from that country, and I must have watched that video, like, 500 times. <laughs> the logo is the key element in the visual identification system. No other symbols or logo type should be used to identify the company. The logo has precise visual characteristics and must be photo-mechanically reproduced from original artworks as provided in the manual. Under no circumstances can the artwork be modified. Such will result in federal fines. For larger-scale applications, a mechanical method of construction is provided. Care should always be taken to position the logo in a generous space, it and surrounding elements, so it can be easily recognized. Failure to do so will result in a federal fine. So that's just to explain that you have to take care, otherwise the government will punish you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a fun job. Um, 
Also, Titans. I, I love that show, and um, hopefully I'll be able to talk about something cool that's actually a little uh, breaking news with that uh, in the coming weeks. But um, I'm rewatching season one, and you know, honestly, I'm a big fan. I was someone that was not a fan at the beginning when it first came out, but I am a, a big proponent of giving something a, a try, and shows never have a good first or second episode. I'm sorry. I mean, like, Game of Thrones is amazing, but... It, 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 that's the exception, but shows, man. You can't expect much in season season one. Episode one and two, forget about it. Um, yeah. The only thing I don't like about Starfire is the costume. That's it. I'm not going to I'm not gonna indulge any of this bullshit racist rhetoric people have about that character. She's a fucking alien. If we're going to get technical, she's orange. And I'd rather not see some, like, jaundice-painted lady. I think she's fine. I think the hair is whatever they made a choice that looks cool, especially when she lights up. I wish she didn't get as, as vascular when she's lit up. I think like it's more about fire than like her skin being magma. But no, the actress is great. The role's great. I like again everything about it except the costume. I think the putting her in like a hooker outfit for the first six episodes was not doing them any favors and set a very negative tone. Just that's why everyone was like, "Oh, look at this outfit. It's terrible." And like I'm, they were wrong to say that. But maybe you should have listened a little bit if people were saying it was terrible. Change it uh, episode two or three. I showed my wife uh, the Doom Patrol episode because I love the Doom Patrol and kudos to Titans. It's a fucking amazing episode. But she's like, why is she dressed like a hooker? I'm like, well, you know, she hasn't changed yet. This is her outfit she's been introduced to us. And she's like, what episode is this? I'm like, yeah, it's far in. <laughs> um, no, but the, the, she's getting better. The arc with Corey, I understand where they're coming from. I just, it's a rocky start. Um, Love Beast Boy. I think it's adorable. I just think uh, making the tiger a thing was um, a choice. It was a risk, I think. I honestly think they did that to for that whatever minority of people watching it who have no idea who Beast Boy is or no idea of the source material. They did that so, oh, he's a cat man. He's like a were-cat. Like they, it takes you away from the idea that maybe he can shapeshift into any animal. So maybe that's why. But I thought the tiger was just, a, you know, it may as well have just been a small assortment of forest animals or a wolf or something. The tiger looks good. Everyone's on the CGI. But I bet CGI looked good. Um, as is, I guess, par for the course. I really like Robin. I think uh, good acting, good casting choice. Love the outfit, but I did kind of love the Jason Todd Robin more. Now, if you see my Twitter uh, profile picture, that's a tattoo I have on my arm, and it's the New 52 Batman symbol over overlapped, or with the Red Hood New 52 symbol, bat symbol, overlapped on that. So it's like the big like black one and then the red one in the middle. Um, and that's because I love the Red Hood. As soon as New 52 gave him a redemption arc, I loved it. I love the idea that someone's trying to help and or be Batman by the beat of his own drum, and they have different ideas, but as soon as he's like, you know what, I will at the very least stop killing people, but I'm not ditching the guns, I'm like, I love it. Shooting kneecaps and obese southern bells in the legs. Red Hood and the Outlaws, Volume 1. Um, yeah. In the show, and this is something my wife pointed out, I, I would probably never notice this, their makeup is super evident, though. That's, like, the only actual criticism I have. Everyone has a lot to pick apart with the show, but I just... The Jason Todd episode, who 
I love this guy. I love the actor. I love how the show did it. I love how he doesn't come across as like intolerable or off-putting, but he's got that rough kind of Oliver Twist vibe. But he's like visibly wearing makeup, like caked on makeup. And so are a lot of the other characters. I just, I don't know if that's a style that it went for or just, it took me out a little bit, especially like in the car rides or in like intense scenes where there's a sustained shot of the face. It's really easy to be like, well, I don't know why the Red Hood put on foundation, but okay, everyone has a bad day. Um, yeah, uh, I will touch on it more in a bit, but the Doom Patrol episode was so good, and there's the, i got to look into this, there's the Doom Patrol show coming out. I'm not sure what, what crossover and what similarity there is, but I had heard in the grapevine a couple weeks ago that they were going to try to poach the cyborg out of the DCU for that, I just don't know which, if it was for like a season two of Titans or if it was uh, for later in the season one of this Doom Patrol show. I had no idea. But whatever it is, I'm, yeah, I'm just going to rewatch it all. I'll just do another episode. (laughs) They filmed episode eight at my work and it makes me super happy. And that's part of the reason I'm rewatching it because I would love to see that bit again. So Check it out if you see episode 8. Next time I do a a talk on Titans, I will make sure I explain some more of that stuff. But it's probably where I'm going to call it for now. I have a 400-page zoning bylaw thing that's just calling to me that, you know, it beckons. The schmeckin' beckons. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and uh, let me know what you think. It's on Twitter. Uh, Dork and Beans Pod. Or Rabbi Batman. I don't know. When I made the account, that was the handle. And, you you know, you can have your at and your name. I'm not sure which is which. As always, you'll just find it with Dork and Beans. And I love that there was another... I mentioned them before. There's another podcast from, like, 2004 that's not making stuff anymore called Dork and Beans. And their logo is fucking awesome. It's like a can of beans with a D20 on it. And they do talks on Warhammer. And I fucking love these guys. They disappeared. I tried to reach out to them. But... I guess it kind of works because I'm kind of on top of them in the Google search now, which is, you know, everything. (laughs) All right. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Catch you next time.